Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis once again for another podcast. I'm going to try to get through two things today, depending on the length of this podcast. If I have time, I'm going to do so 20, which will be the passing of the Grand Kankakee Marsh, the Epperglades of the North. However, I want to cover a couple of things before that, and that may take up enough time to do this podcast and do the Kankakee Marsh for the next episode. I want to get into uh, Game Farm Mallards and the Atlantic Flyway and what's happening there. Uh, but first, I want to report on Ducks Unlimited. As you know from previous podcasts, we live on the condo right smack dab on the Mississippi River. And on the west, obviously, across the river is the lowlands of Arkansas. And I go over there oftentimes, especially this time of the year, to see the shorebirds that are coming through going north. But I noticed it came out a few days ago that Ducks Unlimited is doing a 1,500-acre park right on the on the Arkansas side. It'll be a park, and it'll be overseen by the nonprofit Big River Conservation, which named Chris Ware, an attorney with conservation experience, as executive director. The future plans for the park include new trails, a welcome pavilion with an outdoor classroom, restrooms, and an off-lease Retriever Training Dog Park. That'll be just great just being next door to where we live. So let's go from there and let me get into this uh, game farm mallard business. You know, I find it sad that someone hunting mallards in the eastern North America on the Atlantic Flyway is in fact not hunting a wild North American duck. They're hunting a farm-raised game mallard hybrid only 10% of their ducks are wild mallards. I find it sad that someone hunting mallards in Pacific Flyway is doing such, but that's it. I look at rainbow trout, runs of salmons, bobwhite quail, pheasants, etc., where we restock our wild stock with the domestic raised birds and fish. It hasn't turned out so well for us. It took Mother Nature thousands and thousands of years, if not millions, to get a wild duck that we have in the Mississippi Flyway and that we see today and is so well suited to its ever-changing environment. Then man comes along and interjects himself by interjecting game farm-raised mallards into the wild to the Atlantic Flyway. Now in the Atlantic Flyway, only 10%, get that, 10% of the mallard population is wild mallards. Shouldn't we have learned something from the Europeans who have essentially nothing but game farm mallards to shoot. They have been doing that for years, raising game farm mallards, so that all of their mallards in Europe are, are game farm mallards. So research shows that the old world DNA in mallard populations is largely the result of a century of game farm stocking practices on the East Coast, the Atlantic Flyway. Indeed, game managers have yearly released, get this, more than 500,000 captive-bred ducks on the eastern coast since the 1920s, with their game farm mallards being imported from the old world, Europe. The numbers of mallards have decreased in recent years, which is concerning, but there are still about 210,000 game farm mallards being released annually, and we don't have really know what all this is going to result in over the long term. Moreover, the conversion of boreal forest into open, prairie-like habitat has allowed mallards to naturally expand eastward since the 1950s. 
which increased, obviously, the mallard population in the Atlantic Flyway. Together, these processes have brought wild and game-form mallards into contact, resulting in high levels of hybridization and potentially the formation of a hybrid swarm. And a hybrid swarm is a population of hybrids that has survived beyond the initial hybrid generation with interbreeding between hybrid individuals and wild mallards. So today in America, we have wild New World mallards in the Mississippi, Central, and Pacific flyways and Old World game farm mallards in the Atlantic flyway. To clarify, game farm mallards and hybrid swarm mallards have moved from the Atlantic flyway to the northern part of the Mississippi flyway, but not into the middle or southern part of the Mississippi flyway. And we don't know exactly why that is. So let's get in a little detail into this. Elon Eaton's Birds of New York, published in 1909, listed the mallard as rare or uncommon, noting the mallard as belonging more to the Mississippi Valley and western North America than the Atlantic Flyway. Fast forward to today, and in our change environment, the mallard is a staple in the hunter and birder's daily bag throughout much of eastern Canada and the northeastern United States. Maybe mallards colonized the east from the prairies because we made an open agricultural and giant residential landscape. Or maybe we placed them here by releasing millions of game farm mallards of European lineage along the Atlantic coast. Collaborators have unraveled the complex store of the eastern mallard, and we know they are a hybrid swarm of European ancestry game farms with North American wild mallards. Reinforcement of game farm genes into the hybrid swarms and through crosses with the pure wild populations are ongoing. The end game is unknown. Remember, 90%, 92, 90%, whatever you want to take, of Atlantic flyway mallards have a substantial amount of game farm DNA in their bloodstream. In the United States, the game farm mallard are Eurasian mallard. From stable isotope samplings of 1,254 mallard feathers from wings submitted to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Parts Collection Survey, it was detected that 64% of mallards harvested in the Atlantic Flyway were produced in Canada. In contrast, estimates suggest most breeding mallards occur in the United States. Stable isotope analysis of 1,131 feathers from mallards collected during preseason banding, which was July through September, in northern portions of the Mississippi and Atlantic Flyway, indicated that about 50% migrated from the north to be banded at more southern areas, including genetic work from 561 blood sample mallards. At no point in the banding period would we be confident that we could band a local mallard that was from the hybrid swarm. Rather, mallards from the north, including those of pure wild genetics, were consistently being banded with local hybrid mallards. Another independent sample of 296 mallards from Wattis Point Marsh Conservancy in northwest Ohio was 35% wild mallards and the remainder were hybrids. Here, pure wild mallards were more likely to come from farther north and west. From research, wild captured and game farm mallards differed greatly in size and shape and fed differently. 
Simply, these are very different animals despite all having green heads. So what are some of those differences between game farm mallards and wild mallards? Game farm mallards, their bills are wider, shorter, and their bill's height is larger, making their bill more goose-like. Their bodies are longer, but their wings are shorter. The lamellar, which are the filtering agents inside their bill, when feeding is much less because they have been farm-raised for centuries on processed grain and therefore have less filaments, or lamellized rather, and their filaments, and they have to feed twice as long as a wild mallard in the wild. Feeding longer makes them more susceptible to being shot during the hunting season since they are in the field longer. The hen leaves her egg much more so than a wild mallard, leaving the eggs much more exposed to predators, which potentially could lead to less production of mallards each year as they advance into the Mississippi and Central Flyway. They also weigh less than wild mallards, on the average of 10 to 14 ounces less. So what's disconcerting here is these wild hybrids seem to be less survivable in the wild. They probably don't migrate a greater distance than the wild mallards. So we, we have a lot of unknowns. Deeping a little deeper, the genetic composition of mallards in eastern North America has been changed to release a, of domestic-raised game farm mallards to supplement wild populations for hunting. 296 hatch-year mallards were harvested in northwest Ohio between October and December 2019 to determine their genetic ancestry and geographic origins to understand the geographic extent of game farm mallards' introgression into wild populations in more westward regions of North America. Molecular analysis detected that 35% of samples were pure wild mallards 12% were early generation hybrids between wild and game farm mallards, and the remaining 53% of samples were assigned as part of a hybrid swarm, and I've already given you a definition of a hybrid swarm. Percentages of individuals with some form of hybridization with game farm mallards is 65%, which was greater than previously detected farther south in the mid-continent, which was about 4% but less than the Atlantic coast of North America, which I mentioned earlier, from 90 to 92% are hybrid game farm wild mallard. Stable isotope analysis suggested that pure wild mallards originated from areas farther north and west than hybrid mallards. Studies indicate that continued game farm introgression into wild mallards is not isolated to the eastern population of mallards in North America and may be increasing and more widespread than previously detected in the Mississippi Flyway and even detected somewhat in the Central Flyway and a few even in the Pacific Flyway. So as you can see, this is certainly concerning as the, the Atlantic Flyway is mostly game farm wild mallard hybrids who are progressing into the uh, the Mississippi Flyway, especially in the northern part of Michigan. In fact, they have, in Michigan, you find a fair amount of game farm wild mallards, but their numbers are decreasing, just like the mallards are decreasing on the eastern seaboard. So we don't know why in Michigan they are decreasing in numbers, unless it's, the two thoughts are that it's from this less survival uh, they're less capable of surviving uh, like the wild mallard. 
or they are moving more north away from Michigan into Canada with this warming episode that we're going through. So there's much that we just don't know about. If you're really interested in this, and I find it intriguing to myself, there's one researcher that's really delving into this, in, into T-Dale, and you might want to go and Google search his name. It, it's Dr. Philip Lavesky, L-A-V-E-T-S-K-Y, Lavesky. He has done some fabulous work on this. So let's get on into episode 20, The Passing of the Grand Kankakee Marsh, the Everglades of the North, as it was known. For those who don't know, the Grand Kankakee is in Indiana. So here we go. In its earlier days, the Grand Kankakee Marsh was really a morass, impassable and wide-reaching, full of bogs. Nowhere else in the United States existed so large a body of untilled land so close to any great center of population. It was loaded with countless millions of waterfowl settling over the vast marshes of wild rice. From Moments, Illinois, eight miles west of the Indiana to its source over 120 miles northeast in Indiana, the marsh afforded some of the best waterfowling in the world. It flowed through many shallow lakes and wide marshes in which numbers of waterfowl bred and remained the summer through. Two for- sports from Michigan ventured to the Kankakee, a sportsman's paradise, as they called it. In August of 1856, for wood ducks, black ducks, and mallard jump shooting, they went to hunt. Those that had bred there, the black duck, the mallard, and others, they gathered 120 and lost 40 in the vegetation, which they couldn't retrieve. The two paddlers who were local trappers served as guides and provided accommodations for the wealthy sportsmen who came in ever-increasing numbers to hunt waterfowl over the years. But the Kankakee afforded the best shooting in the spring and fall. Birds were everywhere, a darkening cloud, jostling each other in midair or settling in the reeds for a brief stay and then rising again in mad haste. Teal and plump little butterballs and mallards and swift-speared golden eyes and wild geese and an occasional trumpeter swan and sandhill cranes sailing over ponderous wings in the late 1890s. Market hunters were present on the Grand Kankakee as early as the late 1830s and more so in the 1840s. By the 1850s, they were shipping ducks and geese by the thousands to markets in Chicago, Cincinnati, New York, and New Orleans. The most famous of all shooting muzzleloaders were the Gilson brothers, Ed and Billy. Before breechloaders made their appearance, Ed killed 190 ducks and geese in one day. In 1884, about 320 market hunters made a business of hunting on the marsh. Two men had killed and bagged 280 ducks in a single day, while one market hunter had killed 2,300 in a single season. An article in the Outdoorsman by Bob Becker provided facts about wildlife along the Kankakee River based on a letter from Ed Irwin of Chautauqua, New York, who traveled to Hebron, Indiana in October of 1869 for the purpose of hunting with a muzzleloader in the Kankakee marshes. Irwin tells of seeing local market hunters getting game ready for shipment to Chicago. That morning of 1869, the shipment consisted of five deer, 467 large ducks, 392 small ducks, 22 geese, and 16 brents. 
The station agent reported that Frank Boban and Sergeant, two Hebron market hunters, shipped similar amounts of game always twice a week and sometimes three times a week to game merchants Joyce and Cunningham in Chicago. They devoted their attention to bigger birds, shooting three boatloads of geese and brants in just one hour. Now, brants in this case are snow geese. The birds were so plentiful that the men used no blinds but merely shot from the tops of muskrat houses. The two market hunters used muzzle-loading, double-barrel shotguns and could load very rapidly. Within an hour, they had three boats loaded with geese and made their way to camp. Irwin didn't count how many there were, but they made the biggest pile of geese he had ever seen at one time. For Irwin at Hog Marsh near Red Oak Camp, he hunted one afternoon in a timber hole with his muscle loader, having 300 shells. When within about 75 yards with a mighty Russian war, more than a thousand mallards rose in the air, and still they came, out of the hole and out of the timber on all sides. He didn't attempt to shoot, but stood quiet until the last bird disappeared. The ducks returned in small bunches to the hole, making a short circle before relighting. When his gun barrel became too hot to hold, he dipped the barrel in the water. Irwin knew he had done quick shooting before, but never anything as fast as this. He couldn't reload quick enough. His 300 shells were gone before he realized it. Paddling the boat into the hole, he commenced gathering the birds. He counted 22 bunches of six each and one bunch of four. Irwin, who hunted on the Kanaki at Counts, reported in the spring of 1889 that he shot 650 snipes while the year previously he shot over 700 and the year before that he shot over two. In 1892, two market hunters shot 180 yellow legs. The last large bags of ducks recorded was the spring of 1898 when duck numbers were declining. A market hunter near Water Valley in three days killed 125, 75, and 50. A Chesapeake Bay retriever named Sunday out of Nellie, bred by O.D. Falks, who lived in the Chesapeake Bay area of Maryland and who became famous on the marshes after she arrived at 15 months of age. This is Nellie. From September until the marshes froze up, Nellie retrieved over 11,000 ducks for nine seasons with her market hunter hunting four days out of seven. Monroe Heath and William Milligan, manufacturers of paints, brought land on School Grove Island in 1869. Along with eight Chicago sportsmen, they built Camp Milligan, a resort that catered to waterfowlers. Caretaker G.M. Shavers in 1869 made this entry in a logbook. From September 1 to September 17th, there have been shot 1,100 ducks at Camp Milligan. In the spring of 1870, ducks were transported by steamboat on the river from Camp Milligan to Moments, Illinois, then transported by train to Chicago where they brought a dollar to a dollar seventy-five each. An old-timer said they had so many ducks the wagon box could not hold them all. So they hitched another team to the wagon and fixed it up so it would hold more ducks and had four big white swans on top of the load. He said, we had 1,700 pounds of ducks and sent a telegram to Heath and Milligan in Chicago that they were coming. The wagon's driver received a telegram 
while at moments telling him to meet the train from Chicago as a group of hunters wanted to return to duck hunt. This was the beginning of the heyday of waterfowling clubs. In 1872, two English gentlemen bought land and built the 23-room Cumberland Lodge on Screw Grove Island, which attracted hunters to the Kanakee. In November 1874, three sports visited the lodge and killed 191 ducks, 114 snipes, seven curlews, and five brent. Several clubs were then located near Bombs Bridge in northwest Indiana, while other duck hunting clubs and lodges catered to a stream of wealthy visitors. In 1872, at the Pittsburgh Gun Club, members Henry Brown and Frank Collins shot 165 ducks one day on Goose Lake. Brown had to go home and get a spring wagon to haul the duck. He used a double-barrel muzzleloader. An old journal stated the Pittsburgh Gun Club's members and their guests shot a total of 689 ducks that day. Some tales the old-timers told are almost unbelievable. In 1885, at the English Lake Shooting and Hunting Club, Jesse Cummings, a member, with John Taylor as pusher, carried along 128 shells and brought back 93 ballards by 2 p.m. The boat was level full of ducks and sat so low in the water that only the combing of the deck stood out. On Beaver Lake, and that's a famous lake up in the Kanakee, no one surpassed the two Canadian settlers, Pierre Broussard with a shotgun and Frank Longepre in the art of calling geese in the days before the mechanical squawker was devised. It was said of Frank that he could make a goose get down among the rushes and hunt for him. Shooting one day in an air hole kept open by Canada geese, the two killed a wagon load. While returning along the Kanaki, they noticed another air hole in the river's frozen surface. The hole and air were black, filled with Canada geese. They set up their gear, and Frank began honking. In one hour, they had gathered more than they could put in the wagon. What to do, they asked. They hung up 135 on tree limbs and returned the next day to retrieve them. In 1886, four sports at Beaver Lake killed 250 ducks and six swans in two days. During the 1870s, swans were quite plentiful on Beaver Lake, whose cry went on the wings resembled that of a pack of hounds. Here they feasted on swan celery, which is really wild celery. On Bogus Island, an island in Beaver Lake, a settler said, I have seen a hundred acres of these swans at a time. At a distance, they looked like a white island and would remain in the same locality for a month at a time, feeding on the water celery. Well, as I just said, this is water, wild celery. On a good day, a gunner could easily shoot 50 swans in a morning. On the Black Marsh section of Believer Lake, two brothers, initial W, W, and Isaac Kite, killed 140 swans one afternoon, while Isaac also killed 24 mallards with one shot, and quite a number that was winged escaped in the tall grass. The swans were skinned and hung on their cabin's wall to drive for the market, more valuable $1 piece at Chicago than the meat. Therefore, the skins and feathers were more valuable in Chicago than the meat was at the market. In fact, it brought $1 apiece, the skins and the feathers. Wildfowl seemed to be inexhaustible to the old-timers, even as late as the 1880s, 
Swans were still on Beaver Lake by the thousands. Ducks were also seen in every direction. Located within Beaver Lake and directly east of Bogus Island was Squawk Island, named for the squawking of the geese and ducks that stayed on the island. For the spring of 1889 at the 5,000-acre Cumberland Club, on March 30th, members W.W. McFarland telegraphed other members, If any of the boys ask about shooting, tell them there is good shooting here. C.D. Gammons and I have in three days killed 350 ducks, 21 geese, two sandhills, and a lot of jacksnipes. On another day, McFarland, with three other members, killed over 150 ducks on the Cumberland Marsh. For the spring season, Martin Discall, caretaker of the Cumberland Club, reported that McFarland and Gammons shot 749 ducks, 22 geese, and two cranes. On March 27th, the two shipped 200 ducks and a number of geese. In one week in April, the two shot 520 ducks besides geese, cranes, and snipes. That same year, shooting on the Spartweed Flat in the timber of Little Yellow River, Charles Willard, a member of the Cumberland Club in 1889, killed 100 mallards in half a day. The birds came in so hot and heavy that Baker, Willard's pusher, killed three with his paddle. The barrels of Willard's gun became so hot that he could not hold it. The famous Grand Kanakee Marsh, whose vast marshes in Indiana and Illinois afforded sports for generations of shooters, was almost a thing of the past by 1899, having begun its decline after 1888. Between 1889 and 1899, shooting had steadily deteriorated until as one hunter said, its importance in the annuals of sports for this region is of little import. More guns than ducks, he, he remarked. Before then, one could board a train in Chicago and run down to the Kanaki in a couple of hours and see more ducks, in fact a great black cloud flying all over the marsh, than one could see anywhere else in the world. This fact was partly due to a deep ditch that was dug in 1868, which drained the pineries near Gary, Indiana, and half a dozen miles beyond Chicago that was loaded with little lakes and slough holes, bogs, and quarmires, a haven for waterfowl and market hunters. Thus, seeking a home of refuge, they made their way to the vast Kanakee marshes close at hand, including English and Beaver Lakes. Another fact was partly due to the Calumet region, which was 50 miles from Chicago, being shot out by market hunters, who once that happened, the ducks moved to the Kanakee marshes en masse, shooting all day and sometimes all night with the market hunters and the sportsmen of the duck clubs. The Grand Kanakee Marsh decline began when capitalists from Chicago realized the value lying under this wide rim of mud, water, wild rice, rushes, and cattails. They quietly went to work and bought up large tracts of land at low prices. Then the great steam-driven dredges began their work. For years, they cut their way toilsomely across the great marshes, but the old marsh still held its own. At length, shooters began to notice there was more and more dry ground. The fall flights of snipes, Ducks and geese steadily decreased, so that it was only in the spring that many birds could be found on the marsh. 
Then by 1899, even in the spring, there was not much shooting of consequence. The last straightening of the river began in 1902. By 1917, the Kanakee had been channelized, converted to seven straight ditches, almost canal size, from its eastern boundary to the Indiana, Illinois state line. By the early 1900s, only 6% of the original meandering 250-mile-long Gan-Kanakee Marsh, the largest inland wetlands in the contiguous United States, remained in Indiana. Meek and subdued and muddy, the Kanakee was whipped, beaten, defeated, and subdued as a shallow, trivial stream, a mockery of its former self, hurried on through the straightening rim which was once its own as though glad to leave the scene of its departed greatness. The poorest marshes, the winter haven of sky voyagers, was no more, as they had sunk, settled, and changed into the richest black farming soil that ever existed out of doors, with farming spread all over the once great marshes planted to corn and wheat, while meadows ran out into the marshes for cattle to feed on. It all passed away, marshes, English Lake, Beaver Lake, clubs, hunters, and huntings alike, defeated by the hands of man. The great mallard hose which the Kanakee once held in the hollows of its arm became dry and dusty. Shooters kicked up dust in walking over what was the best of the duck and snipes grounds in the past. The kingly mallard, looking to the right and left, sought in vain for a roosting and feeding place on the Grand Kanakee Marsh, but to no avail. It could not be found. Thus the sportsman's with gun, powder, and shot gave way to the farmer with heavy team and breaking plow, helped along by the axe, and the geese and ducks sought other refuges, and the sportsman's presence in the Kanakee became a matter largely of a most glorious and romantic past. Fortunately for the old-timers that were on the Kanakee in the palmy days of duck hunting, when every day was a red-letter day, they had a priceless store of memories of glorious days spent on the Grand Kanakee. Today, their voices are stilled, and the passing of the Kanakee can only be gleamed from reading about the olden and golden days. As one old-timer wrote, birds by the thousand perished when the marsh was drained. They ruined the greatest game paradise in the world for its fame rested in the unbelievable concentration of waterfowl. Potentially, the marsh is still there, patiently awaiting the day of restoration. You know, if you're a long-time listener of my podcast, you know I usually end with a reflection. I think I'll end the day with a poem, which goes like this. Away from the busy city and the ceaseless clang of the street and the piles of bricks and mortar and the tramps of hurrying feet, Away from the crash and chatter and the whirring, weary strife, come ride with me over boundless plains and thrill with the joy of life. Where blue is the vault of heaven and the master that man adores is everywhere in nature in his own great out-of-doors. The far sing their welcome, they bid us a moment give to come and commune with nature and to learn what it is to live. Where, watchful, the mighty mountain's eternal vigil keeps, or where swiftly swirling waters will lull our unrest to sleep, where by the evening campfires tis joy to forest old scores 
remembering only that we are men and God's great out of doors. So I hope you enjoy episode 20. The Grand Canopy was extremely important waterfowling area in the old days. It has been drained and almost depleted, but they are trying their best to get it back into shape where it has some kind of form like it used to be. So hopefully they'll be able to do there. You know, our previous episodes, I've mentioned that they're going to have Music Fest and the World's Barbecue Contest for the month of May. The Music Fest will start off the 1st of May and the barbecue will end up at the end of May. But anyway, I'm sitting here looking at the park now as they get it ready for the opening of the Music Fest, which will begin the 1st of May. And they are really have done some work on this thing. You'll see, if you come down, you'll see the whole remodeled Tom Lee Park that they've done over the last 18 months or so. They still have about 10% to complete the, complete the remodeling. They were hoping to make this, and it looks like they may make it into a world-class park. So come on down for Memphis in May and, and use it the music and the barbecue. The world-famous Memphis pork, not beef, pork barbecue. And I hope you'll visit my website, waterfowling.net. On it, it has a blog site, which you'll see at the top of the homepage. Click on that, and you'll see numerous old-time hunting stories, well, along with a lot of my podcasts, which I post on there. Now, some podcasts I don't post because they are potential outdoor articles, which I'll submit to an outdoor magazine for publication. But anyway, get on that blog and also look at my books. I'd I don't have any in print right now. I do have some out-of-print books that I have bought back for resale. So if you're looking for one of my old out-of-print books, contact me, and I'll see what I can do for you to see if I have one in stock. I am presently working with Yancey Forrest Nose, who lives in Santa Rosa, California. We are working on Volume 2 of Historic Waterfowling Images, and we have that hopefully have that completed in two or three months and published. He has been very helpful in, in helping me complete this volume, too. It is basically an image book. It has a lot of text, which brings content to the images. So look out for that image book when it comes due. I'll keep you informed. In the meantime, stay tuned for episode 20, which will come out this coming Tuesday. And may God bless.